pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Last week, we started looking at the individual petitions of the Lord's Prayer. And last week, we looked at the first one, the most foundational one, with which all the others kind of build off of. Hallowed be your name. That word name is an important one. It means who God is and what he is like. And hallowed, that idea that we want him to be held in awe, to, to be revered, to be worshiped as he reveals himself. So this petition is getting at the idea when we pray it that we want God to reveal himself, to manifest himself, to make himself known, to make himself real in our lives, in our world, in such a way that it inevitably leads to him being glorified, to being revered and worshiped. We need that in our own lives, to know God better and more at our point of need, and certainly our world does. Now, how is the most basic way, the most common way, that God in the ordinary workings of this world, how does he hallow his name? And that's where the second petition comes in, because the norm for how we come to see God and how God reveals himself is through God's activity in establishing his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And so it's logical that the second petition follows right behind the first petition. You know, uh, we are in the ministry theme that kicked off back in the 1st of September with our ministry year, that is kingdom renewal. We want the kingdom of God to grow in us as a people and as a church, and we want the kingdom of God to grow through us as individuals and as a church. And, and as we were praying about this time last year about what the ministry theme should be for the 2017-18 year, um, we came to this petition because it reflects this second petition of the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come. So today, this morning, as we sit at the feet of Jesus and we, we learn how to pray, because this is what this Lord's Prayer is all about. Lord, teach us how to pray. And so we're sitting at the feet of Jesus. We're learning how to pray using the Lord's Prayer as a model, as a framework for our entire prayer life. The point of the Lord's Prayer is not for us to recite it back word for word, although there's nothing wrong with that. The idea is that each aspect of the Lord's Prayer provides a jumping off point for a more robust, fleshed out prayer life. Each petition serves a different purpose. And so this morning we're gonna sit at his feet again and we're gonna look at this idea, but we actually have to go back in time first, six months. So when we kicked off this ministry theme, and we need a refresher course this morning, because six months ago, or almost seven months, we had a couple of messages that were covering this concept of the kingdom. 
That's not a word that we use in our everyday vocabulary. We're Americans. We don't have a kingdom. We don't have a king, you know, no matter how much the person in the White House may think that he or she is a king. We don't have one, right? We throw them out every four or eight years. And so the idea of a kingdom is foreign to us. And so we got to get this concept of a kingdom, and we need a refresher this morning because, listen, you don't even remember what I preached last week, much less seven months ago, on this idea of a kingdom. And so we're going to start there, and then we're going to springboard from that into how and, and what it means to pray and when this kingdom comes and how it should affect our prayer life Monday through Saturday, not just at church time. So let's do a quick refresher. When, when Jesus says, your kingdom come, he's talking to Israelite disciples, Jewish disciples, who were raised with this idea of kingdom, and especially God's kingdom. It was based out of the Old Testament, this concept that God is the absolute sovereign king over everything that is. That the kingdom, this concept of the kingdom, is God ruling over the universe by his divine providence. Uh, you see a great example of this in the book of Daniel. In Daniel chapter 4, you have the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. He blasphemed God. And as punishment for his blasphemy, God uh, drove him insane for several years. And he's out in the pastures and he's eating grass. And here's the greatest king in the known world, the emperor of the, of the Babylonian empire, the most powerful man, and he's out of his mind. And then the Bible says after several years, God gave him his mind back. And in Daniel chapter 4, verses 34 and 35, this, this pagan Babylonian king who thought he was all of that has now had his thinking readjusted by the true sovereign king. And he has this wonderful confession about God that actually encapsulates the truth of the Old Testament and he says, there is one God, the most high God. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. His sovereignty is an everlasting sovereignty. His kingdom will go from generation to generation. And when the most high looks upon the peoples of the earth, he does whatever he desires with the host of heaven or with the people of the earth. And no one can hold back his hand. None of us can even say, what are you doing? Because he is so powerful and so almighty, and so absolutely sovereign. And so the Israelites were very comfortable with this idea of God being king in his kingdom. It was part of their hymn book. Uh, our video at the very beginning of this morning was from Psalm 103. Well, one of the songs that they sang out of Psalm 103, one of the verses says, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. You see, the, the Israelites were familiar with this concept. They saw the kingdom of God very much unfolding in three distinct phases. This image comes from Third Millennium Ministries, one of our ministries that we partner with, with planting churches and raising up leaders around the world. And, and it's three different icons that are presented to show how the Israelites, how the Jewish world, thought of the kingdom in kind of a linear fashion. The far left is that first phase of God's kingdom, creation, where God, 
created all of the universe, and he created humanity in his image. And this great regent, absolute regent and king, by creating humans in his image, he gave them a special command, and he made our parents vice regents of his kingdom. And he says, fill up my kingdom with my image. You see, in the ancient world, whenever a king came into a land and he conquered it and, and now became part of his kingdom, if you've ever wondered why in, you, you know, in your history books or in museums, you see all these statues of dudes with beards and whatnot, that they were the emperor, like, like Nebuchadnezzar, he had statues made of himself and he spread it all throughout his kingdom from one border to the other because where his image was marked his territory. It marked his kingdom. And so when God tells humanity, fill up the earth with my image, you're my vice regents, you are my kings in standing, he's telling them, mark out my territory, mark my kingdom. And what was his kingdom? The entire planet. But what happened? Our parents, they weren't satisfied with being vice regents. They wanted to be the regent. They wanted to be the absolute king. And so they rebelled and they sinned against God. And that rebellion and that sin set the tone for the entire world. And sin and the fall means that all of human life has been drastically affected and corrupted. The curse of the fall is felt by all of us at the deepest levels, isn't it? We all feel it individually. Some of you are too young maybe to feel it too much, but those of us who've got a few decades under our lives, we know that our bodies are falling apart, aren't they? Yeah. And they're with you, brother. This was the first year I coached basketball, and my dignity and pride would not allow me to play against those boys. So can't do it anymore, right? Our bodies decay, and ultimately they die. We feel this fall in our own bodies, but folks, we feel it in all of our society and our systems that are in every culture and civilization that has arisen. The seeds of its destruction were planted in its birth, and they rise and they fall because of the pervasive corruption of sin that's inevitably planted within the civilization and the culture. Look at the systems that are within our own country or any country. The best economic system in the world that can be created, no matter what it is, it will bring financial prosperity to some, but inevitably it fosters greed and lust, and it happens that where people are abused and poverty occurs because of the corruption of sin. The best political system that brings stability still has injustice in it. And the men and women who are involved in that political system inevitably grasp for more and more power for their own gain and to the disadvantage of the very people they're supposed to serve and protect. It happens time after time after time, regardless of the political system, regardless of the century, regardless of the nation. Why? 
because of the pervasiveness and corruption of the fall. Every religious system created in human history subjugates its people because it is fostering a system of salvation through personal works and merit outside of what Jesus Christ teaches. So every philosophy, every religious system inevitably leads to less freedom, more enslavement for its adherents. All of our systems, we feel this fall in our culture, our systems at the innermost parts of our being, at the core of our souls. We know this to be true. We are beset by our own sins. We have absolutely no hope apart from God's mercy. Every one of us desperately needs the redemption that only God can provide. And that's what this second phase is. The second icon represents coming out of creation in the fall, redemption. In that garden, God pronounced death upon humanity, for the wages of sin is death. He doesn't curse humanity. He curses Satan, who deceived humanity. He curses the ground, but he doesn't curse humanity, for humanity is created in the image of God. Instead, he responds to this sin, and he says, you will die, but with this pronouncement because of sin, he gives an incredible promise, the first gospel promise the proto-euangelion, it's called, the first gospel. There will come a seed of a woman. There will come someone who will crush the head of the serpent, and he will restore this fallen world. In Genesis 3.15, we have this initial promise of God's grace that demonstrates his love for his creation, for those who were created in his image, for the entire universe will be restored through this one who will come. And as you look at the Old Testament, it is the story of God unfolding this story of redemption and his grace, it reveals the depth of his love. He unfolds it through covenants, agreements that are made with key individuals, Noah and then Abraham and Moses and David and ultimately what is known as the new covenant that is established by Jesus. And, and in these covenants, we see the depth and the beauty of God's grace and his love for his people as he unfolds this story of redemption. But with these covenants, not only does it show God's love for his people, it also shows God's absolute holiness and his hatred of sin. And so when the people of God reenact and repeat the rebellion of Adam and Eve, and they break the covenant promises of God, God sends them prophets Men like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Daniel, and, and he gives them warnings. We, we've been reading in our community Bible reading as a church. If you're doing this, you saw this this week in the book of Isaiah where God sends the prophet Isaiah to the nation of Judah, and, and he says, you have sinned, and you're breaking the covenant, and this is what's going to happen. There's coming a day of judgment, and you're going to be carried off into exile and you're going to spend time in exile as punishment because you have broken the conditions of my covenant. You've rejected my love. 
and my offer of redemption through those same prophets, though. He says, my anger, my wrath will not abide forever. And he announces that he will restore them. And this is where that third phase comes into play. When people like Isaiah and Isaiah 65 say, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. This third and final phase that was just up there, let me put it back up there, is known as the eschaton, the, the last days, the end of days, the, the final phase where, according to the Jewish idea, God is going to do exactly what he says in Isaiah 65, create a new heaven and a new earth, make all things new. Daniel, who was one of these prophets who's in this exile that was prophesied and he's in Babylon, and they're going to be there for 70 years, and it just absolutely destroys the, the psyche of the Jewish people. And God gives him a vision of what he's doing, and he gives them this message to give to the people of God, to encourage them to persevere and to withstand this exile. And he gives them this picture of all of these different kingdoms of the world that will rise and fall. And you can see the, the, the Babylonians and the Greeks and the Romans. And, and you see this vision of succession of empires. And at the end of it, you see this. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. And so the Israelites, the people of God in the Old Testament, they expected to come out of this exile. And when they came out of this exile, God was going to establish his kingdom. He's going to smash all the kingdoms of the world into smithereens. Clearly, the prophets teach and there's coming a day when God's kingdom will rule supreme over this broken world, when everything that is broken will be made whole again. And so when they come out of the exile, they rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem, they rebuild the temple, they're excited, they're waiting, and it doesn't happen. And in fact, what happens instead is the people of God do exactly what their forefathers did that brought about the exile in the first place. And they turn to false gods and false worship. And so instead of the eschaton and the establishment of this glorious vision that is given by the prophets that they expected to happen right after the exile, instead they get what? More captivity first by the Greeks, then by the Ptolemaic dynasty, then by the Romans. And by the time we get to Jesus, the minds of the Israelites are expecting this last phase to come about in a very violent way. The Messiah is not a suffering servant. Now in their mindset, he is a conquering warrior king who will come in leading the armies of heaven and with great battle destroy all the Romans and reestablish the nation of Israel to its rightful place of primacy in the world and establish the kingdom forever. This is the mindset of the disciples and the people who hear Jesus say, your kingdom come.
But when Jesus comes on the scene, he begins to preach. And the Bible tells us he preaches the gospel of the what? Kingdom. And when he begins to preach the gospel of the kingdom, he totally resets and turns upside down all the expectations of the Israelites as to what the kingdom of God is all about and what it's going to be like. So Jesus, when he says, pray, your kingdom come, he's telling them, you pray for the kingdom to come according to what I've been teaching you about the kingdom, not with what you've been raised with and not what the rabbis are telling you is supposed to happen. Because what he's saying is drastically different. Because according to Jesus, the nature of the kingdom is first and foremost spiritual. It's primarily a spiritual kingdom that then affects the physical world. One night, a, a Pharisee came to Jesus by the name of Nicodemus, and he tell, asked Jesus a question, oh Lord, true, uh, how do I enter into the kingdom of God? You're preaching the gospel of the kingdom. How do I get in? I want to make sure my ticket's punched. That's in the Greek. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. What's his answer? His answer is, you don't get into the kingdom of God because you are an Israelite, a Jew. That is a physical thing. You come into the kingdom of God through spiritual means. You have to have a new heart that is given to you by the Holy Spirit. It's an act of God's divine grace that he gives you a new heart so that you can believe and then enter into the kingdom of God. The apostle Paul says, the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but it is righteousness and peace and joy and the Holy Spirit in Romans 14. The kingdom's nature isn't physical primarily, it's spiritual and then it affects the physical world. And when it comes to this kingdom, it's not going to be established and grow because the king goes boom and whoosh. Jesus teaches that the kingdom starts very, very small with just a few. Like a mustard seed, the smallest of seeds that is planted and then it creates a massive tree and bush, he says, where all the birds of the earth find its shade. It's like that yeast, a little bit of yeast that is put into the dough, but when it's left there in time, it gradually grows and ultimately it saturates and it pervades and it affects the entire lump of dough. This is the kingdom of God. It's not immediately realized but it grows gradually, slowly, but inevitably to a point of total, absolute victory. And when he comes about and how this kingdom comes about, it's not a conquering general leading an army of heaven, not at all. The means of this, of this kingdom and the reason why this kingdom comes about, it's not through this army that now comes about and it reestablishes and restores a nation state. That's not the purpose of the kingdom. And it doesn't happen through a climactic battle to now the kingdom is started so that a, a nation state of Israel can be restored. 
I, I appreciate and love the well-meaning Christians who buy into this idea, but fundamentally, their thinking is flawed because their thinking is too small. Because God is up to something much greater than the restoration of one little tiny nation state. And he doesn't do it through an army of angels climbing. He does it, he says, by you going back to Jerusalem and waiting on the Holy Spirit. In Acts 1, the apostles say, Lord, is now the time that the kingdom comes? Is the climactic? And he goes, hold the phone. Don't you guys get it? All authority is me. I'm giving you my authority. Go back to Jerusalem. Wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon you. And when he does, you then go and be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and where? The uttermost parts of the earth. Why? Why the uttermost parts of the earth? Why does Jesus say in Matthew 24, this kingdom, this gospel of the kingdom must be preached throughout the entire earth? Then the end will come. Why is this the parameter? Because God is up to something so much greater than the restoration of one little nation. God is up to the restoration of the entire world. And his kingdom is not one little group of people. His kingdom is people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and people from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. He will have his image implanted. That's what he's up to. This is the kingdom of God that we're a part of. And it doesn't get established at some point in the future, Jesus says. No. It's established right now. We're in the kingdom. Now, the timing of the kingdom is, you know, often taught, well, when's the kingdom and how long and and all this? No, Jesus makes it very, very clear. We can't ignore what Jesus says, that the kingdom of God and that image that we go back to, it isn't sequential First there's creation, and then there's redemption, and then when that's done, now we have the kingdom. No, Jesus teaches us, listen, they overlap. The phases overlap. The kingdom and restoration and redemption happen at the same time. And if you don't believe me, listen to the words of Jesus himself, and he says it multiple places, but Luke chapter 17, it couldn't be any clearer. One day the Pharisees asked Jesus, when will the kingdom of God come? What's their question? Timing. It's all about timing. See, 2,000 years ago, people were fascinated. When's it all going to happen? And just like they are today, when will the kingdom of God come? And Jesus replied, the kingdom of God can't be detected by visible signs. You won't be able to say, here it is, or it's over there. Read this last sentence out loud with me in unison. Please read it loud. Ready? Here we go. For the kingdom of God is already among you. When is the kingdom? Now. Now. What's he getting at here? J.I. Packer, he, he explains it in a very simple sentence. He says the kingdom is present in its beginning, though future in its fullness. In one sense, it is here already, but in the richest sense, It is still to come.
And I gave you a phrase several months ago. We live in the middle of the now and the not yet. We live in the middle of the now and the not yet. The kingdom is now, but it's not yet come in its fullest expression of what it will be. So when we pray, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, what are we praying? Are we simply asking for Jesus to come back? Is it a prayer for the second coming of Jesus? Is the coming future tense or is the coming present tense? Yes, he says. Hedge those bets there, bubs. There you go. Good job. I want to suggest something to you. You know, with this one phrase, Jesus has done something remarkable. It's so rich. What he's done with this one phrase, your kingdom come, is he is giving us something to pray that expresses the greatest need of our world, the coming of the kingdom. And at the same time, it reminds us of the hope of the gospel that we already have. Is it present tense or future tense? Well, in the biggest sense of the word and in understanding of this phrase, it's, it's future tense. And in an ultimate sense, it's future tense, okay? You know, in the early church, it was traditional for Jewish uh, inhabitants of Israel to greet each other with a one-word greeting. We say hello, or how you doing, or whatever. What did they say? Anybody know? Shalom, right, peace. Well, in the early church, because of persecution and tribulation and trials that were happening because of their faith in Jesus, they adopted a different greeting. It's a greeting that kind of is reflected and is expressing the sentiment of one of the last verses in our Bible. Written by the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, you find a conversation taking place between Jesus and the Apostle John. And Jesus, who's the faithful witness to all these things, says, yes, I am coming soon. And then John gives his response. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And they, they spoke, the Jewish people spoke Aramaic. And in Aramaic, this idea of come, Lord Jesus, or come quickly, Lord Jesus, is the Aramaic word Maranatha. And so in the early church, in its persecutions and trials, you found Christians changing the greeting from shalom to maranatha. Why? Because it's expressing this very real hope that Jesus is going to come back and what is now in part will one day be made complete and whole. And so in its fullest sense, we are asking Jesus, come Maranatha, come. Why? Because we have kids killing each other in their schools. And we have hundreds of years of crime and racism and slavery. We have young women taken off of our streets and kidnapped and sent to other countries as sex slaves. Slavery in our world is as big a scourge now as it was a hundred years ago. Our world is evil. It's pervaded by sin. Paul tells us we know that all creation, 
has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believe, and we believers also groan. Even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, we still groan. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. So when we pray your kingdom come, this is that moment when we say, God, what happened? Lord, what happened down in South Florida? Lord, would your kingdom come? Would you fix, would you restore this broken world? Would you reveal your glory and your might in our schools so this would stop, in our culture so that this would end? Lord Jesus, come. There's a future sense to it. But also in this petition, there is also very much a present tense urgency. And this is where it becomes extremely practical in our everyday lives. Because when we ask for the kingdom to come, what we are asking is for God to make true on earth what is already true and real in heaven. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Ladies and gentlemen, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? The Bible tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that God has given him a name above all names, that in the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that he is what? Lord He's King Jesus. He rules over every principality and power. He rules over every aspect of creation. He is the sovereign king. I got news for you. Satan is not a contender with Jesus. Satan does whatever Jesus wills for him to do, and not one thing more. Do you understand that? It isn't Jesus and Satan duking it out and the, uh, the ending is in question. The ending has already happened. He crushed his head when he rose from the dead. <laughs> Sin has been defeated. Death has been defeated. Satan has been defeated. He is the ruling, almighty, absolute, sovereign king of everything that is. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. But we see through a glass darkly, Paul says. Our vision is hazy. Here on earth, we can't see what is absolutely true from eternity and in the heavens above. And we need our eyes to be opened and our ears to be opened. And we need God to manifest the glory of Christ and Jesus to reveal himself in a different way. Isn't it interesting that the words for the second coming of Jesus, there's three of them in our Greek New Testament. There's parousia, it's the most common one. 
There's epiphania, like epiphany. I have, oh, lights go off. But one of them that's very in, uh, common and is actually in the title of the book of Revelation is apocalypsis, the apocalypse. Now, nowadays, the apocalypse is not a good word because it kind of you know, denotes zombies and flesh eating and zombie apocalypses and stuff like that. But actually, apocalypsis, apocalypse is a great word. You know what it means? Unveiling. Revealing and unveiling what is actually already there. We need the unveiling of what is true about Jesus to happen in our everyday lives. We need the unveiling of the fact that Jesus has already defeated sin in our individual lives. And so when we pray, Lord Jesus, would your kingdom come? Would you unveil the fact, the truth, the reality that sin is not my master? Because you defeated it. Unveil this glory. Reveal yourself in this way. Make it real on earth in my life as it's already real in heaven. Lord Jesus, you've defeated sin and death. Make it real on earth as it is in heaven. It's admitting that we need to see Jesus fresh and new right now right now. It's admitting that we need this unveiling and more visible kingdom rule in every nook and cranny of our life if we are going to carry out the mission of having the kingdom grow through us. Let me close with this passage of scripture. In Titus chapter 2, where in other translations, the second coming of Christ is referred to as the blessed hope. We read this, we're instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God, while we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ will be revealed. He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us and to make us his very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds. Your kingdom come, Lord Jesus, in my life. You have freed me from every kind of sin. Now make it real in my life. You're the king of the universe. Today, be the king of my life. Your kingdom Come, Lord Jesus, would your kingdom come in each of us, in our church, in such a way that you are inevitably glorified, that the gospel trumpets out in our community in such a way that people are compelled to confess you as Lord and to trust in you alone. God, we thank you that you saw fit to give us a new heart, to bring us into the kingdom, not because of any goodness that's in us, but solely because of your gracious love for us. Now, Lord Jesus, make the reality of your kingdom in heaven 
the reality of our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.